Hello, Heal community. For the first time in nearly a year, I'm opening my practice back up to the general public. I'm actively looking for 10 new qualified clients committed to reversing their illness or health concerns and powerfully taking on their journey to heal. If you're interested in finding out more, go to my website and schedule a free 25-minute phone call. We will discuss what you're dealing with and be sure we are the best fit for each other. Remember, I specifically have expertise in autoimmunity, fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue, mold illnesses, hormones, and insomnia, but can treat much more. Looking forward to connecting with you. Welcome to Heal. On today's episode, we venture into a topic I have been dying to talk about, the legality of naturopathic medicine. Doctors Amy Cole and Tia Trevisano join me from the New York Association of Naturopathic Medicine and share the incredible journey it is to license NDs, a bit about the history of our medicine and why it matters to have the laws backing the validity of naturopathic physicians everywhere. I'm your host, Dr. Sarah Marshall. Oh my goodness. Welcome to heal. This is like, uh, I totally am excited about today's episode where I've got Dr. Amy Cole, naturopathic physician and Dr. Tia Trivisano, naturopathic physician. Tia and I went to naturopathic school together. So this is just so cool to be back with you guys. And Amy, it's awesome to meet you. And we're going to take a little bit of a turn from what we often focus on on HEAL because I want to have HEAL be an opportunity for people to get more of an understanding of the different kind of practitioners are out there and what the differences in medicine are. And this is going to be a conversation about licensure of naturopathic doctors. Now, you know, as my listeners, you guys know me and you know a bit more about what a naturopathic physician is, but I've never really gotten into the details of our background and our training and why we are so common in states like Washington and, and Oregon, but then there's other places in the country where people literally have never even heard of a naturopathic physician. So I invited these two extraordinary women who are both in the New York Association of Naturopathic Physicians and have been fighting the good fight to actually get a bill passed in New York to officially license naturopathic physicians and recognize us as medical practitioners. Now you guys can correct all the wrong language I'm going to use of the ways we're supposed to talk about it and not, but this is my first time living in a state where I don't have a medical license available to me inside my own state. I still have my license in Arizona and in Utah, and I may even pick one up here on the East coast to just kind of round things out. But like that brings up questions even for me where I'm like, oh crap, what does this mean for my practice now? And what do I need to be responsible for? That's actually how I connected to Tia as I went to the website, to the association and wanted to just pick the brain of somebody who lived in New York so I could be responsible for the legality of my practice now in Rochester, New York. And there's one of my classmates staring back at me right on the front page. So it was really awesome to see you there. So thank you guys for coming and doing this. Yeah, thank yeah, you for having, having us. Yeah, cool. So I want to start kind of in the middle, because why not, right? With what's the deal in New York specifically? So where are we at? What's happening? Like, wh what does it even mean to be licensed in New York? Sure. 
I'll talk a little bit about that because I've been heavily involved in that process within the past couple of years. So, and since we have three of us and people can't see us, that's Amy talking. Yes, so yep. <laughs> you guys will learn our voices pretty quick, but that's Amy Cole. All right, go for it, Amy. Yep. So essentially naturopathic physicians are licensed in about 25 U.S. states and territories. Every state basically in the Northeast, besides New York and New Jersey, offer us some type of licensure. So New York and New Jersey are sort of behind the times with this. You know, we've had a bill in a, in different forms for the past 20 years here. So everybody's always like, what's the hold up? You know, what's going on here? And the answer is, we're not really sure. You know, we're chugging along here. Basically, you know, what we what our struggle hit is here in New York, in my opinion, and, and why it's taking so long is something you hit on initially where many people just don't know who we are, you know, in the state of New York, and that includes legislators. So it's been education, 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 who we are, what we do, what our training looks like. And I think once, you know, everybody gets on board with that and really understands what we do, I think there's, there's really no argument to not license us here right. in this state. And so that's been, you know, a big struggle for us, I would say. Generally speaking, you know, the, the general answer is just New York state just doesn't pass scope of practice bills. It's, it's not personal, you know, if podiatrists mm -hmm. want more rights to do things or nurse practitioners or whomever, you know, they, they don't, they don't want to move forward on any type of scope of practice bills. And so we basically have to, you know, argue, you know, what we do is something New Yorkers need, you know, for their, and it's legitimate, you know, and, and we, again, you know, when every state bordering New York and, and with the exception of New Jersey offers us licensure, then New York really needs to get on board with it. Luckily, we did find an assemblywoman, Judy Griffin, to take over sponsorship of our bill this year. And what's really phenomenal about her is that she has direct experience with naturopathic medicine in that she was led to see a naturopathic doctor herself by recommendation of her sister who resides in Connecticut, which is a licensed state. Yeah. Um, and so she, you know, had to find out you know, basically firsthand the difference in licensure versus non-licensure and going to Connecticut to see a naturopathic doctor because we can't do all of the lovely things here in New York state that we can do in other states. So, you know, I think having somebody that is so passionate about our medicine behind our bill at this point is, is, is a really great thing. So I'm yeah. really excited to see what 2020. That was right. my first thought when we were saying education, I'm like, what we really need to do is get them in our offices exactly, <laughs> or their family members. You know, it's like, as soon as, and I hear that all the time is as soon as people witness and experience naturopathic medicine, they're like, I don't get it. Why aren't you everywhere? And why isn't one, why aren't you one of the first doctors I ever got sent to when I got diagnosed with diabetes or like, you know, and we have built in where people will be sent to dietitians, which is a great option. That's a good step, but like for people to even know, and oh my God, I was about to give my answer, but I want to ask you guys first is like, <laughs> I was about to say what I say about what a naturopathic physician is, but I do want to ask that question to you guys is like, you know, and then I have all these follow-up questions already about like, what does it mean? Cause we are in New York and we are naturopathic physicians. And I believe you guys both carry licenses in other States. Is that correct? Yeah. And yep. so 
you know, what does that mean for people if you're working with a naturopath in an unlicensed state? Like, is it safe? Like, there's all those questions that come up. But then before we go there, I want to now zoom out and say, so how do you guys answer the question in the world of education when somebody's like, you're a naturio what? You're a homeopath? Oh, I've heard of homeopathy, right? What do you guys say when people ask you, what are you? Tia, do you want to start? Sure, I'll start. Yeah. So, you know, I think it's important to, to keep it brief and summarize it in a way that people can understand. And it's all about, you know, speaking the language of really kind of where people come from, what they already understand. So my first line is usually that naturopathic doctors are trained as primary care providers. We are trained as primary care doctors who emphasize prevention and getting to the root cause of disease and always using the least invasive modalities possible. So then I'll follow that up by getting into all the details of what those different modalities might be, diet, lifestyle, nutrition, Western botanicals, which are herbs, in some cases also Chinese medicine, herbal remedies, homeopathy, which is its own world in and of itself, physical medicine in some cases, and that we are in most, in the states where we are licensed, we do order laboratory testing and we diagnose and treat disease. In the states where we are not licensed, we are serving more as a basically naturopathic consultant where we may still interpret laboratory, you know, laboratories information, but we are not prescribing, we are not ordering it. So we have the training of of a primary care physician. And our goal is to follow our naturopathic principles, which get to the root cause of illness and help people either to eliminate the cause of disease, or if they're already feeling pretty well, then optimize health and vitality moving forward. Brilliant. I love that. And there are many, many things in those lines that I definitely say frequently and a few things that I don't. So that was awesome. Cool. (laughs) Amy, how do you answer the question? What are you? Mine sounds very similar to Tia and that I always start out with, you know, naturopathic docs are trained as primary care providers. We get both the pharmaceutical approach and we also get the, all of the complementary modalities, including herbs, homeopathy, manipulation, hydrotherapy. I usually say what sets us apart, you know, is not that, okay, we're going to use an herb for your high blood pressure instead of a medication, it's really the angle that we view patients from that's different. And what I mean by that is that we're usually thinking a little bit deeper about things. So yes, we may help to control the blood pressure with an herb or pharmaceutical, but while we're doing that, we're also questioning everything. Why is your blood pressure high in the first place? You know, what does your diet look like? What does your stress level look like? Where is your emotional state at? And so we're really looking to get at the nitty gritty of the underlying cause of the symptoms and looking at the body as a whole. And because of that, yes, we may be ordering labs and, and diagnosing and things in states where we can do that, you know, but we're always taking that information with a different point of view than what we're used to as, you know, with conventional primary care. Yeah. Yeah. The way I, I sometimes explain it for those people who remember or can imagine this was a thing, there used to be this thing called film and we took pictures <laughs> and you used to have the photograph would get printed from a negative and both the photograph and the negative have the same like images, the same information in it, but one is literally the inverse of the other. And mm-hmm. so it's like a lot of times in conventional medical approaches, 
the focus is on the disease, what's wrong, what's, what's not working in the body and how do we stop that from happening? And in naturopathic medicine, I'm always looking at it from the other way around, which is what isn't happening that if it were happening, this wouldn't even exist in your body. Like what healing process isn't occurring that if we could turn that on and we could have the body repairing itself, your blood pressure would come down naturally, you know, and, and like, it's like this inside out view of looking at things. So that's, that's really rad how you guys created that. And I do think it's important to lead with our credibility, mm-hmm. you know, cause that's a place right. that a lot of people have a lot of misunderstanding about it is like, and, and this hasn't happened to me so much, honestly, in the last probably seven years, but I remember, you know, I graduated in 2009, first five years of my practice, I would meet pharmacists. I would meet other medical physicians often from the East coast, because there's way more prevalence of naturopathic medicine in the West coast than there is the East coast and even kind of the middle intermountain States. But I would, I honestly had somebody once go, you're really smart for a naturopath. And I was like, it's not just me. Like, this is actually how the whole, we all had to have qualifying exams and and a qualifying practice in order to get into school. And school is incredibly rigorous. And I even at one point was meeting somebody who was a medical student and she was telling me about her class load. Now I'm aware that like MDs go through their medical training and then they're required to do extensive residency programs that we're not required to do. Many people do residencies, but the way I kind of describe it is we have to pack it all into the four years we're in school. And I was literally taking a double load compared to what her class schedule was. They would take like four core classes and I was in eight. And there were times where I was in, you guys know, I mean, we were in 12, literally 12 doctoral level courses at one time. And 24 to 28 credit hours in a semester was not unusual. And I remember when I first saw our first year curriculum, I was like, I'd never taken more than 18 credits in my undergrad. And I remember actually thinking like, oh, they must measure it differently here. Like those aren't the same credits as what I did in my, no, it's just double. (laughs) It was like literally like this insane course load. And, you know, it often blows people's minds who are in the medical field when I start explaining everything that we, because as licensed primary care, where we can be licensed, we have to know basically all the basic same information of pharmaceuticals and all of the you know basic sciences and the diagnostic procedures and everything of conventional doctors. And we also take three years of herbs and three years of homeopathy and four years of nutrition. And, you know, three, I mean, there's like, it's like a dual degree, really, when you come down to looking at how our education works. Right. I have yeah. a funny story about that too. When, when I was a student, I went to the university of Bridgeport in Connecticut and one of our instructors was an MD PhD and he taught pathology and biochemistry and a few of our other classes. And the one day, you know, in the midst of, I don't know, probably a six day week of classes from 7.30 to 7.30, he said to us, I don't know how you guys do it. I was always done with classes by one o'clock, you know, and then I was able to study or whatever I needed to do after that. And that was my first kind of experience with seeing that difference. But yeah. And you, you also bring up a good point with New York as well. I mean, I think... I think for sure, you know, in New York, we unfortunately are, are more so grouped in that, that category of, well, 
you must have very little education as a naturopath, you know, and part of that gets into that licensure piece, you know, as far as New York state is concerned, anybody can call themselves a naturopathic doctor. And so that could be somebody who went to, you know, an accredited naturopathic school and took their boards and is licensed in another state. And that could be somebody who did maybe a 10 week online natural course, you know, and they could, they'll just call themselves a naturopathic doctor here or a naturopath here. I did have an experience once with a medical doctor in Albany near where my practice was. He invited me in to see patients with him for a couple of weeks. And he had said many of his colleagues that have a negative perception of naturopaths, really, when he gets down to the nitty gritty and talks to them, they didn't have an experience with a licensed naturopathic doctor. They had some type of experience with somebody using the term naturopathic doctor, naturopath that didn't actually attend an accredited four-year school. So another reason that licensure is super important and again, will then further that education piece to the public. Yeah. And you know, that's something that I kind of bumble around a little bit, like not gracefully. I try and be as acknowledging as possible because I am aware, like this whole licensure world, right? Like, so one of the things that I did to prepare for this podcast is we have a really great graphic on the website of our national association. So if you, you know, this will be in the show notes, we'll have a link to it, but the American Association of Naturopathic Physicians, there's a great spot where you can literally see the whole map of the United States and what states are licensed, what states are their bills that are at work on. Michigan and Wisconsin actually have bills that are like passed or about to be passed. And they're like, you know, there's a very soon to be licensure in both of those states. And so you can see the scope of it. But one of the interesting things when I looked at the map was looking at the dates of licensure. And it was really fascinating because like, and I'm not going to get the dates exactly right, but Washington was sometime somewhere in the 19 teens. Like it was like Mm -hmm. 1913 or something like that. And Oregon was right close within Hawaii since 1925, which that totally like, I just didn't expect it. So there's been some places where we've actually had that licensure and been respected inside of that community for so long. And then there were other schools that existed that some of which were actually holding on to some really good information. And there's a whole thing we could get into about the Fleckner report and what happened to medical education in the 1920s and 1930s. And and I actually do want to talk about that. But there were many people very committed to what at the time was called eclectic medicine that was like nature cure, hydrotherapy, homeopathy, herbal medicine that were actually fighting to hold on to that education existing, but they couldn't get an accredited school to even happen. And so there were these other programs that existed. And some of them, I even want to acknowledge that they they tried to hold on to the core of some of the information that was getting weeded out of conventional medical schools like Literally, they almost completely destroyed all education of naturopathic medicine. By 1950, there was one school teaching naturopathic medicine that existed after there were the majority of medical schools in the late 1900s. It taught all kinds of different forms of homeopathy and herbal medicine, and it it was incredibly prevalent. And in like 30, 40 years, it got almost completely taken out of the education system. And so there was an inherent bias that got built in. The challenge was, is over time, I do recall like there are these old time doctors that called themselves naturopaths 
but had never gone to an accredited medical school, which I'm going to ask you guys, what does that mean? But it was, they're amazing practitioners. And so it's like, I didn't want to discredit what they do have, but people need to be able to differentiate the difference, you know, and that's what's driven. And I know there was like problems with licensure in California and Colorado because of this. There were so many practitioners who actually didn't go to accredited medical schools and they had 35 year practices of really making a difference for people. But we were all using the same word naturopath. And it was like, how do we pull those apart to acknowledge what, who they are in their actual level of, they had way more clinical training than I did because they'd been seeing patients for 35 years. And so some States actually chose to kind of create a grandfather clause. There was a lot about language in the laws in order to sort that out. And generally speaking, what I experience is if, if somebody says it's, I'm going to say it this way. It's like organic food. If you go to the farmer's market and they don't have a sign declaring they're organic, they probably aren't. Because if you've gone to the level of actually trying to be organic, you're going to tell people. And so if you go to a website of somebody who says they're a naturopath and it doesn't say I'm a licensed physician, I had gone to this accredited school, they likely didn't. And it doesn't necessarily mean they don't have something to provide. You just want to be clear. It's not the same thing. So like, what does it even mean in terms of like having gone to an accredited medical school? Yeah. So I think this echoes, you know, what Amy was starting to talk about that's difficult in an unlicensed state like New York is this, the key is title protection. Anybody can call themselves a naturopath or, you know, any use this terminology because until we have a license here in the state of New York, we cannot protect the title of naturopathic doctor, which is so important because this is about, I always say, you know, my, my mantra, my mission in, in medicine for my patients is about education and empowerment. So how do you help a person make an empowered and well-educated choice when it comes to their body, their health, their mind? And in order to do so, you actually really have to be an incredibly educated consumer of medicine. Because just like anything else, if you're going to buy a house, if you're going to go out and you're going to, you know, invest big bucks in something, you need to understand, you know, what are the things I'm looking for and what's the most important. And so we don't think about medicine is something we need to be an educated consumer of. We just think like, oh, you're going to the doctor and the doctor's going to tell you what you need to do. And you're going to look within your insurance and this, that, the other. And then there's very limited understanding about the difference between an osteopath, a functional medicine practitioner, a chiropractor, a naturopath, an integrative doctor, doctor. an integrative doctor, you know, any of these things. And this is a whole huge world. And then now with technology, social media, podcasts, you know, you hear information all the time about what's popular and who's telling you to do xyz the other so what you said about organic food is beautiful and perfect because it's true it's like we have to have our our banner up our credentials right there that say a naturopathic doctor went to an accredited school within the united states there are there's six total including the one in canada i believe and the accredited schools you know mean that they have to go through a process to to receive their accreditation and then we all have to sit for national board exams 
that are incredibly rigorous and that you have to have already completed your undergraduate, you know, college before you enter into your postgraduate education, which is four years. And it's a, a doctorate level program. And it is only within those accredited schools yeah. that you would be recognized within the United States at a national level as being a naturopathic doctor specifically. That said, there are states throughout the United States where people are practicing who've graduated from the top tier schools, the accredited schools in the United States, who are in states where because they don't offer licensure, they are then not able to practice at the level of a primary care provider. So yeah. they still have all their knowledge, their wisdom, their education that they gained, and they can still, you know, highlight those credentials when someone comes in and educate locally. But it, you're very correct that, you know, in states on the West Coast, it's like people already know who we are. They understand the level of education. Each of us in these unlicensed states is kind of like a pioneer here, just, you know, educating yeah. the public. What's the difference? Why is it important? You know, because I can learn these health tips online. I can, I can talk to somebody, you know, I can, I can check out on Instagram what's going on and, and follow these folks and, and they have great ideas and, and all of that. And it's true. And we're, we are not here, you know, to compete for the turf. So, and that's something that comes up and I work with MDs and I work with biologic dentists and I've, I, I've been an integrative clinical settings since I first graduated from NUNM. And all the, the docs that I work with agree that we are in no way actually competing for their turf. They are so excited to have us on their team because essentially the, the short answer is their patients get better when yeah. we are with them. Yeah. And so they look at us like rounding out the treatment plan. You know, we provide a completely different service than a lot of the other folks, including what you mentioned other people that might be just more nature cure oriented, but did not go to a naturopathic medical school. Yeah. And the, you know, one of the ways I differentiate my education from, cause there are even, there were, I actually know that several of the schools closed due to, you know, attendance and financial, the 2008, 2009 economic crash actually had a really big impact on some of the education that was out there. But like the way I actually found my way to going to Portland to the NUNM university was because I saw an advertisement for one of these other schools. It was Clayton College, which was an online naturopathic doctorate program where you literally did get a doctorate, but it was like book learning versus a residential clinical program. And that's one of the ways I describe it is like, they, they will learn herbs, they will learn nutrition, they will learn all kinds of really powerful pieces of information. There's nothing wrong with that program in and of itself. It's just, they're not actually working in clinics practicing medicine, treating right. patients, dying with a legal and educational background to diagnose disease, it's, it, that's where it starts to get different. And what was really interesting in my own exploration of this, trying to define physician and define the practice of medicine is cyclical. So physicians are people who practice medicine and the practice of medicine is done by physicians. And in neither definition do they actually describe what that means. And they <laughs> might throw in the word legally. And it's literally like, it was one of those, because I was trying to like tease this out, like what exactly is it so that I can be responsible for the, you know, and, and literally when you Google it and you look up the definitions in different dictionaries, you just get these, like, they're defining the word with the word kind of a thing. And it's like, it is. So it, so for people listening, don't be surprised why you're kind of like, I don't get it because it's actually 
a place where it's not very well defined what the specific things you're going to actually witness in, in, in the experiences between these different kinds of practitioners. So that was one thing I wanted to say, though, is really, though, we do have clinical rotations we're required to do. We have patient observation hours we're required to do. We're on the court, literally in the presence of touching and working with patients all throughout our education process. And that's one of the main, I shouldn't say it that way, that is a differentiator. There's a lot of other things as well in terms of the scope of the education too. And so then that brings us to scope of practice, which is like our technical way of saying, what's the stuff we're legally allowed to do and support our patients with and what stuff aren't we? So I actually have a no needles, no knives practice is the way I describe it. And I don't prescribe pharmaceuticals, even though I could, I'm licensed to prescribe pharmaceutical medication in Arizona and in Utah based on those states descriptions of what that is. And that's another thing that can be a little like weird for people is each state's laws determine how much of conventional medicine we can or cannot practice. So in some states, you can actually be primary care and you can refer on to specialists and insurance companies will acknowledge it and the system will acknowledge it. In some states, naturopathic physicians have hospital rights. In some states, naturopathic physicians can do injection therapy and IV therapy and actually be allowed, like that's another level of depth of medicine. Can you poke somebody and stick things into their body or not? You know, and so all of those things have to do it. Now, I just innately already gravitated towards other modalities even though I've been legally able to do other things. So when I did call Tia and say, okay, what can I do and what can I not do in New York? I discovered my whole practice fits inside of already the way it is here in New York that I wouldn't be betraying anything in the official practice of medicine where here I'm operating as a consultant, as a health partner to people, and then always referring them back to clear all of this with their you know, practicing physicians that they're working with. Do you guys have any comments about that of like what it is that we are able to provide here in New York versus what we can't provide? Sure. Yeah, it's it's pretty much exactly what you described. I mean, in New York State, people are coming into us with their diagnoses already, basically, you know, and then we give them our naturopathic perspective on that and give them all that empowering information so they can make decisions of what they'd like to do with their healthcare, you know, and we can provide them with suggestions, you know, on nutrition and homeopathy and herbs, but we can't, you know, diagnose them at that point. If we feel like something else needs to be worked up or they don't have a diagnosis, you know, that they probably should have based on symptoms that we're hearing from them, we can refer them back to their primary care providers. It's a sticky situation sometimes too, because I feel, you know, I'll see people and I'll say, all right, well, we really need to gather some more data, you know, and I'd like to see these labs, but we can't order them, you know, in the state of New York, I can give you a list of suggested labs and why I suggest them. And you can go back to your primary care provider to get them. And then I always feel strange about that because just like you were saying before, Tia, you know, how we, we round that out and we work well with these providers. That's true. I feel like in New York state, we're almost kind of pushing them to look at the situation. Like we look at the situation, they wouldn't normally order those labs, you know? So why would they think to, to do that? And, and, 
And so we're kind of putting that on them, which I don't think is fair necessarily either, but we are very limited here. You know, I, I'm licensed actually today. I'm in Bennington, Vermont. I'm licensed in Vermont. I have an office in Vermont as well. And it's, it's an entirely different situation in Vermont. We have an interesting licensure picture here that, that recently changed in the past few years where we have a basic license option or we have an enhanced license option. So basically what the difference is, is a basic license. You know, you can, you can order labs, you can act as a primary care physician, but you can't prescribe. So you're not prescribing any pharmaceuticals. And just as you mentioned, I'm very similar to you. I tend to uh, focus more on the vitalistic things. So I chose not to pursue the enhanced license. The enhanced license was created because there were so many naturopathic doctors that were the sole primary care provider for Vermonters that if one of their patients, let's say, was hospitalized and was discharged on all these heavy duty medications that now their naturopathic provider needed to to manage for them, they needed that option. And so the enhanced license basically is such that you can prescribe anything. We don't have a limited formulary. We're able to prescribe anything. There is some- That's kind of revolutionary. Yeah. I've never been in a state with full prescribing rights. I've always had limited prescribing rights, but that's interesting. It's, it's some different requirements. So in addition to the basic licensing board exams that, that Tia had mentioned, we need to take Vermont requires you to take an additional pharmaceutical exam, even though pharmacy is tested in those basic ones, this is pharmacy specific. And then you have to work under an MD or DO to supervise those prescriptions for a period of time. And then you're, you're released on your own. So it's a, it's, it's so interesting, as you mentioned, to see that different licensing scope based on the state and even sometimes differing scopes within the state like Mm -hmm. Vermont. But yes, New York is, is very, very basic in what we're doing there. Yeah. And yet I'm going to say it this way. Like if if you look at it from top down of like, what would be all the medical options we could have? New York is basic, but here's what I'm going to say. Okay. Soapbox alert. This is how I describe it to other students. Like when I often have naturopathic students come to me or new grads and they're a little bit like deer in the headlights, like, oh my God, like it, it, does this medicine even really work? Like, am I going to be able to take care of people? Like there's a little bit of like this, like nerve. And I had it when I graduated, I was like, <gasps> they gave me the license. I graduated. Like I'm responsible for people's lives. How, you know, it was great when I had another clinician right there with me to back me up. But when I was first on my own, I remember the terror of the importance of being responsible for people's health. And in the beginning, I was very concerned about like, I was not prescribing anything. I kept it as simple and basic as I could. And I would watch people get so much better from like, I mean, I joke now that I'm multiple hundreds of dollars an hour to tell people to drink water and eat broccoli, but literally that is a lot of it, you know? And it's, but yet, it's more than that. It's the context. It's the way we get to describe things to people. It's, it's meeting them where they're at. I had a patient yesterday who totally, I mean, we were both almost in tears in the session together because she has had this journey in her body for at least 15 years, 2007 were like more or less is when a lot of things kicked off. And no one had heard her story and retold it back to her the way I did. She wasn't being told she was crazy. She wasn't getting swept under the rug. 
you know, she's the mother of three children. She has a really big life and she comes in with her. One of her primary concerns is being exhausted. And so they were like, well, of course you're exhausted. You have three kids. And it was just like written off. I'm actually pretty sure she has an autoimmune disease and nobody's ever worked it up. And so I am in that position of advocating. And this is what I'll say is like, I completely get like, no, I don't want to strong arm any other practitioner. And I think practitioner respect and reciprocity is integral. Our relationships with other physicians. So I always say it this way to my patients. I'm going to write you a list so you don't have to remember it. This is exactly what I'm recommending. Take it to your primary care. If they have any questions at all, my phone number is right on there. Please, I want to talk to them. I want to partner with them on this. I'll be totally honest. I've never gotten one of those phone calls. But it's like on my side, that's that creating the partnership. And most of the time, the docs will either go, oh, sure, I'll do this. Or they go, well, I don't know why we're doing it, but I'll order it anyways. And I get like one of those two responses. And I've also, though, had more and more patients, I call them clients, really, more and more clients who I work with that are saying, I started with this new OBGYN and they were thrilled I had a naturopath I was working with. They were so excited I'd done so much work already where I'm at. And so there is this opening that's happening with more integrative practitioners, with the way that integrative medicine is going out. When I find myself talking nose to nose with a physician, now <laughs> I haven't lived in New York very long, so I know the culture is different on the East Coast. So it'll be interesting to see how that happens. But most of the time when I'm actually talking to a physician, they're just curious and excited and stoked about a lot of the things that are there now compared to how it was 10 years ago where they were suspicious and I had to kind of win them over. You know, it is important to me though, and I get a little bit of a like splinter under my fingernail when medical doctors go and do three weekends of nutrition and integrative medical certifications. And then they have like launch an integrative medical practice. Part of me is like, ah, but when I, that's my small self talking. And when I get to my big, I'm committed to the health and healing of all of humanity self turns on, the reality is it's a numbers game that we are like spitting in the ocean right now, trying to change the tides. And I actually did this workup. I've done a lot of mentorship for students and new doctors, and I love throwing statistics at them to kind of get them to change their viewpoint. And I looked up how many medical doctors there are in the United States. And it's right around 1.2 million medical doctors and how many nurses there are, which is 3.5 million and how many chiropractors there are, which is 65,000 and how many licensed acupuncturists, which I can't quite remember, but I think it's around 35,000. And then how many naturopaths and naturopathic physicians we have. And I'm actually going to use both of those terms, which the reality is we don't know. There's not a really good tracking system because of this issue around licensure too. It's hard. We don't even know how many people are practicing in unlicensed states. We can track it in the licensed states. General estimate, there's somewhere between six and 7,000 licensed naturopathic physicians in the United States. Six or 7,000 to 1.2 million medical doctors. So if 10% of those medical doctors want to do integrative medicine practices, yes, like, thank <laughs> God, you know, we, yeah. if anything, you know, in the face of it, we actually, I was working with some investors looking at a business opportunity for training nurses and medical doctors, because the reality is we are the leaders of what medicine needs in the future. Yeah. The education that we have, the understanding we have is like, literally what's being called for. And we as naturopaths have to be willing to stand up and speak out about who we are 
so that we are the ones that get to open up the new pathways into the education. Natia, I can see you sitting on the edge of saying something. Yeah. Well, yeah, just, I mean, you're, you're 100% correct. And the thing is that even just, it is a little bit of a rub that, you know, folks will go to those short courses and then boom, they're out there and they're the face of integrative medicine and, and, and health and wellness. And the naturopathic doctors are sitting back a little quietly, like fighting for our rights. Hey, we've been here for a long time and this is what we do. And we're experts here. But I will say this, like you said, the difference between our small self and our higher self you know, the higher self is looking at that as, hey, this is a sign of the changing tide. Literally, if those docs are going to those weekend courses, then they are starting to know and understand the true value of needing to know more about the functional approach, needing to know more about the integrative approach, about diet, nutrition, you know, all of these other things, because health and wellness is not about, as you said, you know, needles and knives and drugs, I would add. To that. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, most of the docs that I've worked with that are medical doctors, I've I've had unbelievably positive experiences with them. And, you know, they are a little bit, let's say, out on the spectrum because they've learned the hard way, you know, some of the damaging effects of how they were trained on patients. And so they're looking for alternatives and they've got good hearts and open minds and they really want those alternatives. They're frustrated with the consequences of the procedure driven medicine, the pharmaceutical driven medicine, and the fact that like, there's so little time to spend with a patient that, you know, you're prescribing really quickly. If that med doesn't work, you're adding another one. The patient is lost and confused in the process. And so, you know, things are getting worse instead of better. So I think it's a sign of the times. I think the momentum is building. And if there's only six or 7,000, then that is room for a revolution. (laughs) I remember when I first Totally. I first, my first practice was in Bozeman, Montana, which is like on paper at the time, it only had a population of 35,000 people in the whole city. Now we also had a college that had another 30,000 students. So there was a good amount of people in the region. And I remember like there being a little bit of like, so in general, naturopathic physicians often like to go hang out in the same cities because we're all like, we're outdoorsy. And so like Boulder, Colorado and Bozeman, Montana, and some of these places, there's like 10 of us in a tiny city when they're normally, you know, and I remember there being like a little bit of this, like, oh my gosh, three of us out of our graduating class from Portland all moved to Bozeman the same year. And there was two other people I knew that were moving there. Like there was going to be five new naturopaths in this relatively small community. And there were already 10 docs there. And it was a little bit of like, am I nuts? What am I doing? Like, and then I did the thing. I Googled it and there were a hundred medical doctors. And I was like, until our numbers are equal, we're not even close to saturation until there's a hundred naturopaths for a hundred MDs. We're not even there yet. So it just was like, keep changing the perspective and opening it up. I mean, I haven't really told Rochester, the community yet that I'm here. I'm actually like trying to get myself ready for the flood that will happen when I actually, because my parents have been here for a long time and they are the first ones to tell their uh, physicians, my daughter's a naturopathic physician and whatever you tell me, I'm going to check with her first. (laughs) And that's been how it, and then they like share, and I've actually gone to many of those appointments. I know my dad's cardiologist. I know my mom's cardiologist. I know my mom's OBGYN. Like they have had, well, I've had relationships with them for years and they're like, just tell me when, just tell me when you're ready. Cause I've got a whole practice full of people. And there's like, I think three other 
that I can tell from some Google searches, there's three other naturopathic physicians who have licensure level education and they're licensed in other states and they're here in Rochester. So I'm like number four in a county of a million people. It's like, you know, watch out. I actually have to be prepared for what, you know, could happen going forward in, in that part. So it's, it's what we do is so needed and it so makes a difference. And like going back to Amy, what you were saying is like, the, even at the most basic level of what we are legally allowed to do and recommend. And I mean, we it still doesn't have anything to do with the fact that we can reverse chronic illness in just about anybody. I mean, it's like literally have people completely alter the trajectory of their health and well-being is totally possible working with a naturopath, even in an unlicensed state. So seek them out, find them, you know, and what I love is that more and more states do have associations so you, that's how I found you guys was looking up the New York Association for Naturopathic Physicians and they will have lists of their members. And that's one of the best ways I know to be able to find doctors in your local area that have been to accredited schools. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I wanna touch on something too. I mean, the, as far as saturation of NDs in certain areas, I used to have that mindset too, like, oh no, do I wanna go to an area where there's already an ND or, I am like encouraging people now come to New York because the more that we have here, the more people are educated. That's more exposure to to naturopathic medicine. And again, like you mentioned, even though we can, we just do basic things in New York, they have (laughs) powerful impacts on people and communities. And all that is, is more education for who we are and what we do. And I find that to be, to be really awesome. And of course, I encourage anybody that's an ND in New York state to definitely join the NYANP because I think it's really awesome to have a great community of naturopathic providers as well that, that, you know, we can stay in contact with and, and talk to each other about struggles that we might have here and how to help each other out. So, yeah. That was really my experience in Montana and Utah, because Utah, there were 30-ish of us in the whole state. It's a little bit harder. You have to either have done a residency program or practiced for five years to be licensed in Utah. So it, there's not as many people that come into that state, but we actually have some great residency programs because of that. The doctors there are just like, all right, well, I'm going to offer a residency program in order to create that opportunity for new doctors. And it was like, my tight crew, like when I had any question, when I was worried about something and it was very different than my experience and it might've been me, I'll take responsibility for this. But when I was in Arizona where there were like several hundred naturopaths and our association was a lot bigger and there were naturopaths kind of around every corner, I picked up more on the competitive edginess between practitioners than when I was in smaller communities. It was like, we got each other's back. We're here for you no matter what, how can we learn from each other? Like it was actually a really inclusive environment. And I also have heard that argument from some people when they go through the legislation process, which is if there's not very many naturopathic physicians in the state, they're like, well, then why are we even dealing with this bill? There's only 30 of you, or there's only a hundred of you or whatever, you know? And so that's the other part is like, you know, I have family here and I knew I wanted to end up here long-term. And so coming back and getting to increase our numbers and build the momentum for the rationale of like why that bill should pass because what it'll create in an opening for what's next in medicine and also more validation, but also more actual literal consumer opportunity for people. Cause there's just all kinds of doors that open when you do have licensure, like just tons of them. Mm-hmm. Right. 
Right. I have heard that from assembly members here in New York State before. The, the, one of their first questions after I, I give them the whole spiel about who we are and what we do is, are there any NDs in my district? You know, yeah. and and in in many we we you know we have NDs, but there are definitely quite a few districts where we have none. You know, and yeah. I and my response usually is we don't. But if you license us, you know, we will, we yeah. will, and yeah. and the constituents will be healthier for it. You know, so yes, that is definitely one of the struggles we've seen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I promised I'd go back and talk a little bit about the Flexner report because I brought it up. So I want to circle back around that. And and this is a space of like, I could have this conversation with a glass of wine one way and I could have this conversation another, but I'm going to stick really close to the facts. And I did a little research on this. And so my point about sharing this part is to really get the longevity of natural medicine and where we actually were in the late 1900s, you know, in the 20th century, as we moved into the 21st century. So in the 20th century, the most popular medicine was homeopathy. And there were over 15,000 homeopaths, 22 homeopathic schools, and a hundred homeopathic hospitals in over a thousand homeopathic pharmacies. Like it was dominant. And, and what, you know, and I say homeopathy, cause that's actually the one that we're able to track the best herbal medicine and hydrotherapy and other, what are kind of collectively deemed as vitalistic modalities. They were critical in the treatment of the tuberculosis epidemic and actually epidemics. And we didn't have so many pandemics, but we'd have epidemics where the, one of the first places where herbalists and homeopaths would get called on was infectious disease and these concerns around this. And in Samuel Hahnemann's time as the father of homeopathy, he lived from 1755 to 1843. He treated Napoleon. He treated many of the kings and queens and royalty of Europe. And he literally would get like taken to Holland and taken to France and all over to actually support the royals in there as a physician. And that is one of the most, as much as like, there's so much conversation around invalidating homeopathy as a form of medicine, it's actually one of the longest standing forms of medicine. It has thousands, uh, about no, hundreds of years since those you know times in the early uh, 1800s, it was like a major form of medicine. And now today, it's actually still one of the most practiced forms of medicine worldwide. India in particular has a huge amount of homeopathy that is the primary form of medicine in many, many, many communities. And I found another thing here where in India, there's 25% growth a year in homeopathy and more than a hundred million people depend solely on homeopathy for their healthcare. Mm -hmm. And when you think about it in the basic structure of homeopathy, you take a physical substance that might be expensive and you dilute it to create the remedy. So it's incredibly economical, which is a lot of why, but if it didn't work, if it made no difference in patients, it would not have stuck around for 300 years. Like we wouldn't have that. And so there is this credibility and there is this history and that's only one modality. We could get into it in other forms. And the American Medical Association was created in 1847 and it was established for really good reasons. It was established in order to create a 
standard of medical education because up to that point like people would go for, to school for a year and they would become a physician and there were physicians in farming towns and there were physicians in cities and they did not have the same education and they were not coming from the same standards of care and there was not a lot of information being, you know and it was risky back then there was like very a lot of misinformation being passed around so it came from trying to standardize education and advanced scientific research. The tricky part came in when funding came into the game. And Rockefeller and Carnegie specifically created a system of funding people being able to go to medical school. And this slant happened of biases. And this is the facts of the Flexner report is that he worked for Carnegie Rockefeller Foundation and it was one person, a single person. Imagine if this had happened today mm. and his, actual job was to survey and review the validity and standard practices and value of an education of 160 medical schools. So just that alone, one person evaluating 160 medical schools, it's kind of ludicrous. You want to know the timeline he had to do it in? 163 days. Wow. Yeah. That report came out in 1910. And there's tons of documentation that will actually have some of these articles in the show notes talking about the implications of what he said in that report on all forms of complementary and alternative medicine, osteopaths, chiropractors, naturopaths, homeopaths, herbalists, midwives, there was a whole range. And the point is, is what you see is that at the turn of the century of the 21st century, the majority of medical schools were teaching some form of herbal medicine, homeopathy, and natural medicine, or it was the predominant part of their education. And within 25 years of the Flexner report, the majority of those schools had been completely taken out. They were no longer funded. They weren't able to keep up. And it also restricted research. And the problem with that is, is we often will say complementary alternative medicine isn't science-based, which is literally not true. Mm -hmm. There's a huge amount of research that backs up complementary alternative medicine. And one of my professors in school this may not be the statistic today, but what she said then was that 40% of conventional medicine is backed by scientific research. Not 100%, right. 40%. And 30% of complementary alternative medicine is backed by scientific research. And that number has grown today, particularly when you're willing to acknowledge research from other countries, which we have this like kind of ridiculous bias against, well, the only research that counts is research that's been done in the United States. Korea and Brazil and Germany and so many other countries have huge bodies of work that have been done in alternative medicine that we just literally pretend like it doesn't exist here. Mm -hmm. And so when this report came out, ultimately what ended up happening is there were no homeopathic schools by 1950. And as we said, there was one naturopathic school and it was the school T and I both went to. And then it took, and there was another time in the 1980s where our school almost closed and right. then there would have been none. And they, they literally had no campus and they were meeting in students' living rooms, like demanding from their professors, they continue the education. And that's the only reason why we still had that knowledge. It could have completely disappeared. So my point of this is a lot of the things that we do get pushed up against of like, well, what's the scientific backing of your medicine and how valid is it? Like there's a conversation that needs to change and to recognize our history and what happened such that it just got invalidated and underfunded and there was no research to start to be able to allow us 
to continue in the same direction that pharmaceuticals. And the reality is, if you want to talk about which medicine is the new medicine, it's pharmaceutical medicine and surgery. That's the new kid on the block that should be proving itself in terms of how safe it is and how valid it is. And as much as often I will hear things about like, ooh, watch out for taking too much vitamin D, it can be dangerous. And these herbs, there are very few herbs, very few, that if you took a hundred times the dose accidentally in a bottle out of your actual cabinet, it would kill you. There are a lot of pharmaceuticals that if you accidentally take a hundred times the dose out of your own kitchen cabinet, it will kill you or a family member. The majority of the time, if there is too much of an herb or a certain natural medicine, not all, but the majority in your body, you'll puke, you'll have diarrhea, you won't feel good, your body will eject the medicine, but there's no long-term implications in it. And that's one of those things that we just like, I'm the dangerous medicine. Are we sure about that? And it's not to put down pharmaceuticals. I mean, this is end of my soapbox and then I'll let you guys talk again, (laughs) but it's like, I wouldn't be on this planet without steroids and inhalers and breathing treatments. Like literally, I probably would have been one of those kids without, but the two years of my childhood, I had zero asthma was when I was working with a homeopath Yeah, and they got kicked out of New York state and I couldn't keep working with her. She chose, it was the pressure was too high in the eighties. She literally chose to leave because she just couldn't stick it out with the pressure that she was getting from her community. And she moved to Canada. Wow. I think that's so amazing, Sarah. Thank you for bringing that up because I, I like to talk about that Flexner report as well. And, you know, you mentioned we are the leaders. We are the ones that are, are here. And we it's not a new concept to think about how people get written out of history. And it's yeah. our job to bring it back. We have to teach the history. The history is there. And I'll just bring up, you know, for the, the listeners in the audience, the book Nature Doctors, because I love that book. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's It's for people who are nerdy about looking into history because it tells the story of the individual men and women who pioneered medicine and brought it from Europe uh, to the United States at that time in history. And they tell and share their stories and what they were up against, which was actually a lot more challenging in some of their cases than just being told that they were quacks, you know, went all the way to legal action and, and all kinds of issues that they, they faced and they share their stories. Stories and coming from a really rich tradition and a long history and sharing that, you know, with our patients, you know, communicating within our organizations about it and bringing it back because we live in the age of spin, right? You take a piece of information and you share it one way or the other way. And, and we forget to dig deeply into history. We're just looking at what's new, what's at the top, you know, and, and what's at the top of the, the algorithm, right? So it's, there's a lot, there's a whole bunch of information out there that talks about the history of this medicine. You mentioned India. I, I did a study abroad to India when I was in um, my undergrad and I was there for four months and I was traveling around. It was before I was thinking about going to NUNM, but I was interested in Ayurveda and yoga therapy and all these things at the time. And one of the homestay families I stayed with was 11 medical doctors in the city of Jaipur and they treated only with homeopathy and they Uh, were all MDs literally. uh, And so, you know, we got food poisoning and my roommate got the flu and, and there's the doc, she's mixing up the homeopathics. And I picked up so many books while I was there and just reading them about, you know, the homeopathic tradition around the world. And many of the things that are in modern medicine have taken concepts, right? Concepts of homeopathy. (laughs) Yeah. 
and all these other things. And so it doesn't hurt to speak a new language and teach the history. And in fact, you know, I think a lot of what we've been touching upon in terms of just the psychology uh, for humanity, right? We're like all afraid of what we don't know. We can be a little afraid of this concept of the turf war and the saturation and everything. And that's just a mindset, right? And if we, if we can see it for what it is and we're allowed to sort of release it and change it and shift it, you know, there's, there's more than enough people who can benefit from us. And the more we share, the more we collaborate, the more we recognize you might be the best fit for one of my patients and I'm going to send them to you, you know, and and you're going to send somebody my way. It's, it's, it's all about spreading, sharing the information and recognizing that this is about health and healing and empowerment, you know, and, and that the, the history is there, the information is there. And when people ask those questions, like, you know, do you believe in this or how real is it? How valid is it? Like we have to kind of dig deep and kind of push a little into like, what is that? Where is that coming from? I, I, I love the acknowledgement, but often I'll have people when I do tell them what I do, they go, I believe in your medicine. And I go, do you believe in your cell phone? And they're like, what? I'm like, it's technology. It's just technology. It's science. Like, okay. You know? Yeah. And I mean, there's so many pieces we could go into that. Like uh, there's a whole paradigm shift that is coming in many aspects of humanity. But like one of the things that always strikes me, and this is for the medical community as a whole, I mean, can you imagine the people at the forefront of innovation and computer technology if they were put in prison for coming up with new ideas? Right. Like Elon Musk would have been imprisoned like 900 times over for the stuff he's up to, but no, he gets investment and backing. Right. And in most areas of medicine, if you are doing something innovative, 99% of the, the perception is you're doing something that's dangerous. Right. And that in and of itself has massively held back. If we like can put the different industries, major industries of like communications and technology and vehicles and, you know, all of those, you put them all up there and you put airline travel and you put medicine medicine would fall way to the bottom for innovation, for working out. I mean, there's a whole thing written up on black box thinking and how the most complicated complex form of travel, which is airline travel is the safest form of travel. And how there's comparisons that have been done frequently of the safety of medicine and the safety of airline travel. And quite frankly, we should all be flying around in jets and never walk into, and I don't really mean this, but when you deal with the reality of the lack of safety that we have built into our medical community that we're not allowed to talk about, you know, that we're not allowed to bring up, because if I even say anything then I'm automatically like invalidating every physician. And I'm not, I'm talking about the whole system. And it's the stuff that physicians will talk about behind closed doors to each other only safely when you can ensure you're not going to get written up for something that comes out of your mouth or have legal action taken against you. I mean, the amount of fear that is built in for my friends who work in hospitals and that work in other physician situations I'm glad I'm independent and out here and on my own. Like, I just don't have to deal with so much of the things that they do. And we did an episode on physician burnout and physician suicide. And it's like, what we talked about was a tiny little granule in this huge system of how we do not have our medical system set up to, you know, I mean, I'm like, I would love to have homeopathy and a complementary alternative medicine and in hydrotherapy in every office. But if we don't even deal with that, if we just deal with, 
getting safety issues on par and allowing physicians to practice true to their hearts instead of having to abide by what the insurance company will pay for it, where they could actually practice their best medicine from their own training, that alone would transform the whole scope of things mm-hmm. Right before we right. even bring in all of our knowledge. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't have any uh, emotion or passion about this topic yeah. at all. No, me either. I feel like we probably should continue the conversation. Yeah, I know. Yeah, we'll have to create an episode too, you know, the the next one. And that's part of what like, and I'm pushing myself in this podcast to be willing to bring things up that normally I would be scared to talk about, Yeah, you know, and, and to start to invite, can we at least start talking about these things? Yeah. And, and, and I'm willing to say that there's going to be stuff flies out of my mouth that I'm wrong, that it's just me being judgmental. Like, okay, great. Call me out. I'm okay with that. But like, if we're not willing to start the dialogues. Yeah. We have to have an honest conversation. And, you know, I think the state organizations, we are, we are working from the standpoint of education and leadership. And it's interesting because, because what we are dealing with right now is, is paradigms that are very connected to fear, you know, and I, I had read this quote and then it, you know, things pop up and then they come back to you when you need to remember them. So it came up in one place and then I found it in another place again, and it's from a psychiatrist and it says, you know, the absence of courage in society is not cowardice it's conformity and so if people are conforming to a certain standard of you know feeling only comfortable talking behind closed doors I think that's changing I think throughout the country and around the world people are speaking up and they're looking for alternatives and they are you know they might be afraid to put themselves out there you know and be kind of the black sheep but it is happening because conversations are happening like these and it's really important that we get them going and that we speak openly and that it's okay to have an opinion and to also change your opinion after someone calls you out. That's what we're talking about is an open mind and an yeah. open heart. The other stuff we're talking about, the stuff we're up against is the resistance to change. You know, medicine has to be this way because that's this is what we've been familiar with for the past 75 years. Yeah. Well, what about all the years before that? And what about all the years in the future? We don't exactly. stay here, especially once you see that institutions get influenced, right? They get influenced by the way of doing business. And when the way of doing business via that influence starts to be harmful, we have to take an honest look at that. And we have to talk about how to change it in the right way, in the legal way, in the appropriate safe way, you know, and, and to teach the folks out there that, that you, there are many people you can talk to and work with, and you can have multiple specialists and a collaborative team of healthcare providers, but to know what you're looking for. Brilliant. I love it. And, you know, for people who want to support this movement of licensure and they're not a physician who's going to necessarily join the association, what can people do? The first step is to go to the website. So that's nyanp.org. There's a lot of great information up there in terms of, you know, what we are doing, of course, to educate how we work with the membership. But beyond that, there's information about just helping the organization out financially, making a donation, which will support our legislative efforts, among other things, you know, our ability to keep lobbying and communication is not cheap. (laughs) Yeah. So there's links, there's the, the website's great, you know, it, 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 
it will take you to all the appropriate places to get involved. You can write the letter uh, to your legislator and there's a way to kind of personalize the story too, which we would love to hear from people who know naturopathic doctors, who've worked, worked with naturopathic doctors. You know, tell your story if you feel comfortable. It, it's, it's so incredibly helpful as we gather you know, that information and we can share it and put it out there, then the association can really help people. That's what we're here to do, you know, yeah. to help people. Awesome. Those personal stories go so, so far with the legislators yeah. in New York City. That's really good to know. Yeah, absolutely. Great. Well, I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to be a part of the association and work with you guys and, you know, get to be a part of making this difference. Cause I know that, you know, all the other States that have been licensed, it's been on the backs of quite frankly, a handful of naturopathic physicians that took a stand for it. And in like the state of Utah, they funded it. I mean, literally like out of their own pockets, hundred thousand dollars or more to pay for lobbyists in order to make differences in the bills. Like it literally came out of their pockets most of the time. And that's a big deal. And then that's a hell of a legacy that we get to put down for the future residents of New York. And every state that has a licensure bill passed, it puts more momentum for the rest. At some point, it should be nationwide. And we have this, you know, throughout the United States. And then there's naturopathic doctors in over 130 countries around the world. And there's many other conversations about availability in other countries and lack of licensure and lack of recognition. And that's a definitely another podcast. <laughs> Thank you ladies so much for taking time out of your Friday morning to be here and be on heel. I just, this was a very important and very cherished conversation. So I appreciate both of you. Thank Thanks you for having us. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. And we'll have contact information for both of you ladies in the show notes and how people can reach you. We'll have many references to the articles and the information we talked about here, including our national organization and the New York State Association. If people want to contribute or just find out more, please, 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 no matter what state you're in, you know, writing to your legislator. And I know many of my listeners are people that I know personally and my clients, hello, could it be really great? It makes a difference. The difference that I've made in your life and other naturopaths have. And the more we share those stories and get it out there. And I mean, legislature for sure, but I can even say like, just speaking up on social media and sharing that mm -hmm. as a part of your life and saying, this is, you know, a practitioner I've seen and it's made a difference in my life. The more people hear that, the more they then get the opportunity to think about it. I've had people come to me because someone shared on social media about the difference I made. And then I'm now able to make that difference with them. And I would have never connected with them otherwise. So we have voices. We get to yeah. use them and make a difference. Thank you guys so much. And we'll do this again. Great. Great. Thank Thanks. You. Interested in supporting the production of Heal Directly? We're looking for people interested in joining our team to expand our reach and build the Heal Academy platform. If you have expertise in online marketing, platform software, or podcast audience expansion, contact us directly on my website. Thank you to today's guests, Amy Cole and Tia Trevisano, for their continued stand for our medicine. For a full transcript and all the resources for today's show, visit sarahmarshallnd.com backslash podcast. And a special thanks to our music composer, Roddy Nickpour, our brilliant editor, Kendra Vicken, and you guys, we couldn't do it without you. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next time.